Hello and welcome to Playback Daily for Wednesday the 8th of November. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what's coming up. Uh, but basically, you know, those names, you know the way you're chatting away to, with maybe to your, to your wife or to some of your friends and you know that person and, and, and you know everything about them, but God, I can't remember that name. Soul destroying for those of us who have been impacted ourselves. We're talking about 165 families now whose lives have been utterly destroyed. Um, there is no turning back the clock for those families. So my dad rang and my only hears me going, hello? And then my dad goes, I have an announcement to make to the family, right? <laughs> I go, what? He goes, I did the lotto and we nearly won, he says, right? <laughs> We're going. I nearly won. I nearly won, he goes, what? A new four-part documentary charting the career of Robbie Williams dropped on Netflix today and Claire Burns spoke to entertainment journalist Max Actor about what we can expect from it. Good morning, Claire. How are you? Lovely to have uh, you with us. Now, we're probably going to have a few spoilers in this conversation, so if people are <laughs> looking forward to watching this tonight, you might want to turn the volume down for a few minutes. So how is it? Did you enjoy it is the most important question. I think, oh, Claire, it's so difficult when you ask me a question like, did you enjoy it when there's so much tough things that you're watching? Um, I think I'm absolutely, I'm really happy that I had the opportunity to get to know Rob, not just Robbie, because that's one thing that I'm left with. I watched all four episodes a couple of days ago and it's really telling that there are, there is definitely this character that he's created, bravado, cocky, Puts, gets into the Robbie mode when he's being this entertainer. But when he's at home with his four kids, his wife and his friends, he's Rob. And I think this documentary, the first two episodes, we kind of see the guy that we know, you know, this 16-year-old kid that became one of the biggest um, artists in the world as part of Take That and then as a solo musician. But episode three and four, we get to see something different. We get to delve deeper. We get to know who he really is um, and his family life and, and his addictions and uh, his insecurities. It's not often we hear men talk about how they feel about their body, the way that they look. And he describes himself as most of his life as grotesque, which is shocking to me because he's one of the most attractive and adored pop stars in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, we've had that conversation about Britney Spears and how she was treated by people uh, in the media when she was at the height of her fame. But also if you look back at Robbie Williams, I mean, he was subject to so much body shaming over the course of his career. And that is what you're seeing in the documentary then is how that affected him. Yeah, but we also see him call out the British press. And it, it was difficult as a member of the press myself um, hearing him talk about the British press as being the worst in the world and that when he was here, he always felt the least loved. Like it, it, when you would see him flying all over the world, you see a guy with more joy, he's more relaxed, he seems more comfortable. But then when he was back here, there was this like real anxiety. People hate me. He, he genuinely felt quite hated. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because the documentary makers, um, Joe Pullman, who's made some awesome docs, including the Bross documentary, the Louis Capaldi, the Hogwarts uh, reunion, which I loved because I'm a big Harry Potter fan. But it's interesting because um, Joe, as a director, made Robbie sit there and look at footage of Robbie being quite difficult when he was younger, when he was being cocky and he was being a little bit, I, I would say, 
annoying and quite irritating to some of the press when they would ask him questions and he would he wouldn't really answer directly so some of the backlash he was receiving was because of what he was giving out but if you put that aside and you watch this documentary you see moments when he releases music he does go through addiction and the weight gain and he's having steroids injected in him which increases your appetite you're eating more you see those moments and the sun newspaper he calls out the sun newspaper particularly and a journalist who i won't name but um he he says you know they were really responsible for making him feel absolutely horrible for most of his career and you see him in in brazil or somewhere like that claire and he'll be performing to eighty thousand people and then he'll read an article the son had written about him calling him fat and saying he's put out the worst song in the world and he's destroyed mm-hmm. absolutely that's, destroyed that's what he takes home with him that night not not the yeah. successful performance just can I go back to when he left um, Take That because if we cast our minds back they were on the road for five years they were still massively successful they were in the middle of a tour the Nobody Else World Tour in 1995 and he walks away why did he do that does, does he explain what was going on in his head at that point it's imagine you sitting on your bed in your underpants. Well, I'm not saying <laughs> let's not imagine that <laughs> in your undies because most of the time he's in his underpants. He's in his bed, and they're basically playing all this footage from 16 to 49. So it's it's insane for anybody to sit there and see themselves and all those different stages. What I found really interesting and also um, incredibly endearing was him actually putting his hands up and saying, as a 16-year-old, I joined Take That. They were all about five years older than me. And he was just so not sure of who he was, his place, and the acting up and being the bit of the cocky one, the silly one, was his character protecting himself because he wasn't sure of who he was yet. And then Gary Barlow, he talks in in detail, actually, about his jealousy and and being horrible to Gary. And when he left, how how it was just unacceptable. He pauses the laptop and he says, I'm so sorry. Like, I shouldn't have been that way. I was just an immature, insecure kid. And I'm so glad that I put things right with Gary. And I had the opportunity to go back on tour with Take That on stage. I love Take That. And I think that huge, that moment in the documentary absolutely makes you think, actually, it's nice to hear him realise that he made a mistake. Yeah, and he's fixed it. And and, and there you go. So you're talking to a lot of people listening who will have been in Slane in August of 1999 when Robbie Williams played a huge gig here. He's gone back since and said that was a career highlight for him. But in the documentary, I understand it was he explains how difficult it was for him to even get up on the stage and perform that day. Yeah, he says Slane, oh, he's there and there's a journalist and he's, and he's being asked about it. And he says, Slane is three days away and I'm really scared. I was in bed worrying about it last week. I've been in a black depression for the last five weeks. Now, when he says this, um, we don't see the journalist's face, but we can see the microphone and we can assume that the journalist is behind the camera. The journalist is quiet and is like, oh, are you OK? And then... Robbie's has a moment where he can see that everybody's obviously uncomfortable with what he said. And by the way, Claire, when he says this, he says this seriously. It's not banter. You genuinely feel very uncomfortable hearing him say that. He then says, hey, do you want me to give you a different answer? And then he says, hey, biggest gig of my life. It's going to be a wonderful experience. And in that moment, you realize that he was trying to ask 
for help and say, I don't, I can't do this. I'm scared. I need help. But the performer, because of the reaction, maybe back then it wasn't as easy to talk about mental health and how you were feeling. And people were like, oh, you, you're a celebrity. You're famous. Shut up. We don't want to know about this. Yeah, he pulled, he yeah, he pulled the performance out of the bag uh, towards the end. Did you get the sense, Max, as you come to the end of the documentary series that he's in a good place now? Um, actually, yes, because at the, I would say more so because at the premiere last week, he had a pop up in London and he said something that I thought was really, it was a surprise, but also really nice to hear him say he's turning 50 in Feb. And now most people, as they get older, you know, people are like, oh my God, I'm getting old. And he actually said that from 40 to 49 has been his best the best years of his life, he's healthier, he's got his four children, his wife by his side, and he hopes that the public, people will allow him to do this thing called entertainment in some way because now he feels that he's in a position where he can actually give us the best Robbie, Rob, and also enjoy it. And that was entertainment journalist Max Akhtar on Today with Claire Byrne. Road safety was being discussed on a few of today's programmes, including the News at One with Brian Dobson. A leading road safety campaigner here has said that there needs to be a more urgent focus on road safety by Gardaí and policymakers. 165 people have died so far on the roads this year, already 10 more than in the whole of 2022. Donna Price is co-founder of the Irish Road Victims Association. She herself lost a son in a road accident. She told us there needs to be greater guard of visibility on the roads. Well, first of all, it's it's absolutely heartbreaking, Uh, Brian. Soul-destroying for those of us who have been impacted ourselves. We're talking about 165 families now whose lives have been utterly destroyed. Um, There is no turning back the clock for those families. Um, And we deal with them every day in Irva. Um, So, yes, there's... We need to look at it um, with a much more urgent focus because these are real lives that are being impacted every day and so many young people involved. And while we're talking today about the the statistics and the numbers, um, it's important that we do focus on that, the human aspect of it. And we can't obviously comment on individual cases. So any any comments that I make, you mm-hmm. know, are, are, are on that basis that we're not talking about individual cases. But we're calling for, you know, much more high visibility of the Gardaí on the roads. As Gay Byrne used to say, we're not seeing enough yellow jackets out there. And people are continuing to take chances with their own lives and the lives of others. So more more Gardaí and a more visible Garda presence is, you would, you would say, absolutely essential? Absolutely. Um, every day we're seeing speeding drivers, drivers on their phones, drivers driving while intoxicated, quite unbelievably, when it's so socially unacceptable to do so. And even driving while tired. And the research carried out by the Road Safety Authority you know, shows that so many, I think in excess of 40% of drivers are exceeding the speed limits on rural roads and therefore endangering other road users. Um, and while the reaction of the government is to give is to give us more go-safe speed vans, then the numbers being detected by those vans are minuscule 
compared to the the levels of uh, drivers who are breaking the rules. So what do you say to the, the comments of the Garda Commissioner yesterday? He's talking about more fixed cameras to detect speeding and particularly um, more of these uh, cameras which will which will average somebody's speed over distance. I mean, think people might be familiar with, with them in, for example, the Port Tunnel in Dublin and maybe elsewhere. They, they can be quite effective on motorways. Absolutely, and we, we would call for those as well. Obviously, the Gardaí can't be everywhere, uh, so the average speed cameras would certainly be be useful. So yes, the use of technology certainly has to be utilised wherever it can be, um, and we're not seeing enough of that at the moment. I think we have the average speed cameras on the M7 and in the Port Tunnel, as you said, uh, but they could be much more widely spread um, to to complement the Go Safe vans and the Gardaí the Gardaí um, being out there mm. themselves as well on the road because we do need to see Garda visibility as well. Donna, what about the quality of the information that's available as, as we try to tackle this? It's it's 2019 since we've had from the, the Road Safety Authority the data that tells us that the cause of, of serious accidents based on, on coroner's inquests and Garda investigations and so forth. And for the last three, four years, we simply haven't had that information available. Should it be available? Absolutely. And for families who've been affected, it's absolutely soul destroying to have to be fighting for the information of the circumstances surrounding your loved one's death. We need it for justice, uh, but the Road Safety Authority and others need it for prevention. You know, we need to prevent these crashes occurring. It's never going to bring our loved ones back, but it can prevent um, or spare other families going through the utter devastation of such a preventable loss. Now, but you're on the board of the Road Safety Authority. Do you as a board member understand why the RSA hasn't been able to publish this information? Obviously, I'm speaking to you today as a bereaved mother and founder of the Irish Road Victims Association. But yes, the Road Safety Authority are looking for uh, comprehensive information um, from the Gardaí. Um, we would like to get it quicker, uh, but the Gardaí can't release it, I understand, until inquests are concluded or any criminal proceedings are concluded. So therefore, we're looking at um, statistics which are quite old. We would love to see statistics for last year now uh, so that we can work on preventing these collisions occurring. Yeah. M- many of the fatalities we've seen this year, and again, this isn't a past judgment on, it, on, the, on the reasons behind any particular um, incident, but, but many of them have, have involved uh, young people, people, young people just at the very start of their adult lives. Is there a job to be done in terms of educating young drivers in particular? Absolutely. I think there's a a job to be done educating everybody, all road users. Um, And we do that, Brian. We we have educational programmes through the Road Safety Authority where our educational officers will go around to schools. Uh, IRVA also do that. We call around to schools and uh, together with the emergency services, uh, we provide sessions for transition year students, um, which are very effective. Uh, And we can see the impact that they have on the students who are there listening to our talks. Um, But it's not just those young people. I I know that they bring the spotlight, if you like, on the numbers at the moment. But there have been many pedestrians, elderly people killed on the roads this year as well. And we're looking for uh, the roads to to be segregated, I suppose, to, to protect vulnerable road users like cyclists and scooterists and pedestrians. They shouldn't be sharing the road with HGVs. Um, you know, and we need to look at those uh, and, you know, perhaps uh, restricting 
their movement to maybe the earlier hours of the morning, as we do in Dublin. I, I think they're not allowed into the city centre during certain hours. And maybe we need to look at that for our towns and villages as well, where our elderly and more vulnerable road users are being killed. And finally, Donna, families, I understand, of road victims will be invited to a ceremony of remembrance, which is taking place is it the weekend after next. The UN World Day of Remembrance for Road Traffic Victims is on Sunday, the 19th of November. We're holding an event in Mullingar in the Bloomfield Hotel at one o'clock. And hundreds of families travel from all corners of the country to attend that service. And it's free of charge for anybody attending. And, and all are welcome. You know, so unfortunately, we're going to have hundreds more this year, you know, because of the, the fatalities. Donna Price, co-founder of the Irish Road Victims Association on the News at One today. Next Wednesday night on RTE1, Mark Little and Carla O'Brien present a scripted docudrama set in 2050, focusing on climate change. And Mark spoke to Mary Wilson on Morning Ireland. Scientists have warned that climate change is fueling increasingly destructive extremes such as flooding and severe heat waves. Last month was the hottest October on record and despite ambitious targets, global CO2 emissions hit a record high last year. Now... Cast your mind forward. It's 2050. The scene, a meeting of world leaders at the United Nations in New York. And it's a make-or-break climate summit. That's the premise for a new docudrama. Tomorrow, tonight, presented by Mark Little and Carlo O'Brien. It will air on RTE this day week. And Mark Little joins me now in studio. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Mary. You're projecting forward 27 years. Set the scene for us. Yeah, so it's it's a the night time. We literally are moments, minutes away from this vote of the UN. And we're just taking stock. How do we get here? So Carla's with me. She's in this incredible studio. It's a beautiful production, I can tell you that. And she's telling us how we got here. We've got a team of reporters across the globe talking to figures at the forefront of climate change. And we're talking to experts in studios. And what happens is, as we go through this, and this is a piece of science fiction, but it's mm. always sticking to the science. But there's the element of the what if. What if we got some things right? What if, for example, Irish farming was transformed? What if, for example, we get back the rainforest from the threat it's under right now? But also at the same time, reminding people that there's permanent change here, that there is things we can't turn back. So it's a combination of facing up to the worst fear, but also potentially giving us that sense of empowerment today that we have time to do something that could have an impact by this climactic night that we're portraying. Do you look at what I'll call maybe unavoidable consequences, the damage that we have done already and also maybe the changes that we can still make? You know, I think I look at sort of current affairs and the future for myself personally, having had experience obviously in current affairs but also in innovation. And I always think when we look around the corner to tell stories about the future, we end up leaving people paralysed by fear. They don't sense that they have a way of changing things. And I think that's part of what we have a responsibility to do as people telling stories about the future. The second thing is we take binary choices. We get polarised about an issue like agriculture right now between good people and bad people. And that has to change. And in some ways, the only way we can help people think about why we, how we could change this is by saying, you know, what would happen, for example, if you were talking to your, in my case, as yet unborn grandchild, and they're asking... What did you do when you had a chance to make the change? 
And that was a presence of that future generation in the studio on the night. And I can tell you, myself and Carla got a bit choked up at times, thinking about not that kind of hand of history, but the hand of the future on this generation. But in terms of those maybe unavoidable consequences at this stage, are we looking at mass migration? Are we looking at a water crisis, a water war? We're looking, for example, at people migrating, not because they want a better life, because of fear of their life when they come to heat waves in places like India. So we take the issue of migration head on. There is no good choice there, right? It's just a series of bad choices to manage a situation that is almost in train right now. But at the same time, there's areas where we add the what ifs. What if there was the right person in charge, the right policy in place and the right will behind, for example, Irish farming, Irish agriculture? So yes, there are permanent changes we're not going to avoid. We have a series of bad choices to manage. But again, back to this idea, the tipping points we know that are coming up in the coming 27 years, they don't all have to be bad. There is compounding innovation Mm. as long as we're not focused on sending people to Mars. Did you emerge from this uh, with some optimism that we can make the changes necessary? Yeah, but, but also a sense of determination. Like, I do not want to look at my grandkids and tell them what I didn't do. And Colin Murphy, the playwright and the author, has done a great job of putting words in people's mouths in the future that make you feel like certainly angry at times, certainly, but well, also determined. Really looking forward to seeing it. It's called Tomorrow Tonight, presented by Mark and Carlo O'Brien. It airs on RT this day week. We also have a live event on the Tuesday night to talk about the making of the programme and the Project Arts Centre if you're in Dublin come join us Okay free event how do they get tickets? Come to the Project Arts Centre they have details Mark Little on Morning Ireland and you can see tomorrow tonight next Wednesday night at 9.35 on RTE1 On the 9 o'clock show, Oliver Callan spoke to Robert Foury, who's from South Africa and living in Cork. Robert is 95% blind and he spoke about his passion for cycling. Good morning to you, Oliver. Thank you very much for joining us. How, how does a, a blind man cycle? Well, um, the, the way I cycle is on the back of a tandem as a stoker. The person in the front is called the pilot and yes. I'm the stoker. I can't see well enough to get on a bike myself. So I sit in the back and push. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lovely term as well, the stoker. <laughs> yes, the stoker goes back. Um, my great-grandfather, my great three of them, two of them were actually um, uh, train drivers. So uh, it, it's sort of ironic that I'm the stoker now on a bicycle. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and how did this come about? There's a, there's a group in Cork that's helped you achieve this. Yes, um, the group is called Cycling for All, Cork. Mm-hmm. And um, the aim of the group is to let people with any sort of disability that uh, means that they can't get on a bike on their own to have a, to have a bit of a, a cycle every week. So most of the people that go to the group have visual losses, um, but we also have a deaf, we have a couple of deafblind people. We have, um, we also have people uh, with other sort of physical disabilities, you know, that, that mean that they can't cycle on their own. So it's not only for blind and blind people or people with visual losses, it's also for all sorts of disabilities. Yeah. So it's very inclusive. It's, and the great thing as well is that we have the people who, who sort of volunteer to be the pilots have a great time themselves. So we have a complete mixture of sighted people and uh, able-bodied people and people with disabilities that 
that go together every Thursday morning and have a great time. We socialize on the marina, the, the village in, in Black Rock here in Cork. And um, so we have a great social time together. We have coffee and cakes and whatever. And then we go out on the tandems in small groups. Um, and we normally do about 12 kilometers. Most of us do that every every week. So it's great fun. Great. And when you give Mark O'Donoghue from Cycle for All a, a call, uh, what were your expectations? Well, I was, I, I was a bit nervous because uh, I didn't know what to expect. All I knew was um, that... I wanted to have a little, I'm a swimmer, so I do go swimming at the Mardike Arena here in Cork, which is great. And I, and I, I walk quite a bit with my, I, I use a white cane to get around town. But I, I've just felt I need a little bit more exercise. You know, I'm aging and you, you don't want to, you know, you, I, I feel I want to age well. So I, but I was nervous because, you know, getting on the back of a bicycle, <laughs> that's a yeah. different story altogether when you're a blind person. It's yeah. a bit nerve wracking. So, so I left it for a couple of weeks and eventually I phoned, I actually texted um, Mark and he he was like, I'm immediately, I'll see you tomorrow and we'll do a test run. And so I got on the back of the bike and did my longest cycle ever in my life <laughs> that same day. 12 kilometres. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so How did yeah. that feel, Robert? It was fantastic because, you know, there, people think we have five senses, but we actually have more senses. We have the vestibular sense, which is the sense of balance and keeping yourself balanced as you move at the middle and, and forward and forward and sideways motion and all that. That's the vestibular sense. And, mm. and uh, there's proprioception as well. It's your knowledge of where your hands and feet are in relation to the rest of your body. And to get on a bicycle stimulates those senses you need yeah. you, which remain understimulated for people who are a bit sedentary or stay in the same place all the time so it's such a thrill to get on a bike and move and to feel the, the wind going through past you and you know to to be in communication with another person while you're exercising it's, it's absolutely fantastic and um, of course, I've got I've gotten fitter. In I've only done this for about four or five months now, and I'm starting to feel I'm getting a bit fitter. Is that and, right? Wow. Um, yeah. So it's great. Very good. Very good exercise, and also the social dimension, mm. being with other people like myself. But there's also that thing of inclusion, which you know, when you're a blind person or a person with a disability. You know, getting out can be a hassle if you're in a wheelchair or you've got a cane and, you know, to socialize can can be quite tricky. So there's this inclination to disabled people to sometimes stay in and not go out, not be seen, not be heard as a person, not make an appearance in the world sort yeah. of thing. And um, to to be to have something to do like that, where you're part of a group and to be included. I mean, that's a human need, isn't it? The it need is, to sure. be part of something and to belong somewhere and to be part of it. So, it meets so many needs for me um, that that I'm a I'm a complete fanatic now about it. I'm like, <laughs> <right>? Go cycling. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, what I love about it is the idea that you, as the stoker in the rear of the bike, uh, there's 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 obviously. A great trust between you and the pilot who's who's actually the person with vision who's able to cycle and, and steer along. Uh, 
absolutely you get you like my first time getting on that bicycle you know you when the, when the pilot gets the bike ready for the blind person or the person with a disability to get onto the bike um they have to stabilize that bike so that you can get in and get your feet into the little uh the, the, the things that hold your, you know, onto the pedals and then the, the cages, yeah. You have to sort of, the little cages that your feet go in and then that, you know, you can't just easily pull out. If the bike starts falling, you're, you're stuck. So, yeah. And then also if, if the pilot doesn't know what they're doing, um, they can, they could, they could end up doing something uh, dangerous. Like for example, when you're going over leads, like those are slippery at this time of the year. And uh, the rule is don't make changes while you're going over leaves. You, you don't accelerate, you don't decelerate, and you don't go around a corner at, so that the, the, the bicycle tilts to the side because you, you have to keep that upright when you're on the slippery surface. So it, you have to know what you're doing. And so the pilots get training. They have, they have little training courses that they run on weekends for yes. able-bodied volunteers to 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 do this. But the other thing is our group also has other sorts of psych, uh, bicycles. So we have recumbent bicycles um, for people that 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 um, you know require those people who've 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 got limbs that say the legs don't work. Mm. So. You, you can get on a bicycle for that. We've also got, tri- uh, like, we've got a tricycle um, that is also a tandem tricycle for people that don't have the stability to stay upright on the bicycle. They, right. could, they couldn't get on an, a typical tandem. They would, need, they would need sort of stability to be strapped in. And um, so they get an opportunity to, to um, have a, go out on the cycle on a more stable bicycle. And, um, yeah, that's, that's – it's, it's, the, There's the wonderful freedom. The group, yeah, there's in, wonderful freedom for people. Inclusion. Who, yeah, inclusion. Including people, yeah. Can, yeah. can I ask you cause, about your own uh, sight loss? Because you, you weren't born with, uh, with, with, with the blindness that you currently have. I was born with a condition um, that that predisposed me to visual loss, and I have retinitis pigmentosa. Um, so initially, it was night blindness, and then it started impinging on my. I couldn't. I had to stop driving when I was about thirty-one, right. and then um, uh, and then as time went by, I needed a cane, and I continued working for a long time until my reading vision became impaired and then I really struggled to keep up with my duties so I had to take early retirement from from um, work and that was a very difficult time for me to have to to do that and so yeah I I, I struggled with with life it, it's been it's been difficult with you know loss you go through a period of grief mm-hmm. um, with sight loss um, Especially if it's slow. I mean, if it, if it's sudden, it can be a pretty devastating thing as well. For sure. Um, mm. do, do you feel excluded? Well, it's it just by na- by nature. You could, like say, for example, you go out to the pub and you're in a group of people. You can't see how they bounce off of each other. Yeah. Like eye contact, the social cues, um, the the sort of um, things that people do that are nonverbal, you miss out completely. And so you can end up saying the wrong thing or sounding like, uh, like you've, you've said something wrong or, and then if you think about people with deaf blindness as well, so there's 
somebody who's deaf and blind. And we have somebody in our group like that. And um, they, they're not only cut off from the world of images and pictures, they're also cut off from the world of sound. They have a hearing aid, but I mean, that only brings you so far. Yeah. And so you can just imagine the sort of isolation those people um, endure. Extraordinary. And, extraordinary. And, and then when you socialize, there has to be a very clear effort involved. It's not just easy talking or chatting, you know, like you can just talk superficial stuff back mm -hmm. and forth with, with somebody with so with many dis multiple disabilities a very very strong effort has to be made to make contact with that other human being mm -hmm. and um but when they get on the back of a bike they have just as much fun as i do and there's laughter and enjoyment in the movement and the and the pushing of the body and the the in the interaction with other people as you do that um, the pilots are trained to comment on the world around so when we're going along let's say the the marina the pilots will say there's a bump coming be kept, just get brace yourself for a bump or yes. we're going to be turning soon we're going to do a sharp turn or we're going to do a, a gentle turn or we're going to make a u-turn oh look there's a ship out in in the water that's making a turn there are little boats out we, there's another pedestrian coming along with a with a labradoodle. You know, you'd you'd have this constant commentary God, yeah. and mark uh, to tell you to to sort of make it enjoyable for you. Yeah. And I have a bit of partial vision, so I can sort of see the colours around me, and I can see general shapes, but I can't see detail. And um, so that that makes it very enjoyable to to um, to move around and to have somebody mediate the environment to me. It, 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 it helps, it, it makes me feel connected to the world I live in. Robert Forey speaking to Oliver Callan on the nine o'clock show today. Dr. Harry Barry, GP and mental health specialist and Dr. Anne-Marie Craven from the Department of Psychology in UL joined Claire Byrne to chat about forgetfulness in middle age. Now, Harry, you have a self-proclaimed interest in this, do you? I do, because <laughs> uh, we all do. <laughs> I, I, I have struggled with this for at least 20 years, Claire. So I, 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 I have to put my, my hand up and say this is an area of particular interest to me. Do so you know what, what we're talking about is yeah. seeing somebody's face. You know them really yeah. well and just can't think of the name. This is a type of oh, example, right? Yeah, the, 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 uh, the classic examples here are of what I call the forgetfulness of middle age. So we have this paradox we we're talking about it later. Uh, but basically, you know, those names, you know, the way you're chatting away to, with maybe to your, to your wife or to some of your friends and you know that person and, and, and you know everything about them. But God, I can't remember that name. Yeah. And it, that's not just the only thing. Uh, it's also associated. I, I go up into a room to get one thing and I come down with something else. I go into the supermarket and I suppose I have to get four or five items. And what's that third item or fourth item? And I'm wandering around looking like an Egypt. You know, I know I know it's here somewhere if I can just identify it. Uh, uh, and the other things that we lose our keys, we lose our glasses, we lose our mobiles. Where do all the names, the glasses, the mobiles, uh, where do they all go? Yes. They, and I'm convinced there's somebody wandering behind me hiding. <laughs> <laughs> and then you see if a couple of those things happen in a row, you start thinking, is there something yes. wrong here? Absolutely. So I spent the last 20 years kind of really worried. Now, maybe this is an indicator that I'm actually going down this road. So actually... 
it's, uh, I think when we go into this in a little bit more detail, you'll see how relieved I am, yes, really. Yes, a bit of reassurance yeah, 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 here, yeah, yeah. Anne-Marie, really is what we're offering. Because can you explain to us what's happening with our brain when we're in middle age? Yeah, well, I think when we often expect children, babies and children, I suppose, to develop skills at a particular rate. And then we have this expectation that in older adulthood, certain cognitive functions might decline. But I think we see ourselves in middle age as really being adults, not necessarily older adults. And we expect things to remain more or less as they are. But of course, our brain function is still changing. All aspects of life continue to develop. So we are potentially going to see some changes in middle age as well. Um, so I'm not quite as far along, I suppose, Harry, on this journey as you, but I certainly see it coming, uh, particularly when names, when you have a lot of names to remember, uh, that can get more tricky over time. But I think um, it might be helpful to talk a little bit about what actually memory is before we get stuck into to how people might manage forgetfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there are different types, aren't there? Yeah. So some types are procedural memory. So that's your memory for motor skills like riding a bike and also perceptual memory. And that relates to recognising visual and auditory stimuli and also taste. So what ice cream tastes like. And procedural and perceptual memory, they don't require effortful remembering. We don't have to think hard about how to ride the bike. And we don't have to think hard about what ice cream tastes like. And in adulthood, memory for procedures and for some perceptual memory functions, that doesn't change a whole lot. Um, We might go cycling so often, but we remember how. But other types of memory do show a little bit of decline. So Mm -hmm. one type is prospective memory, and that's your ability to remember to do something you need to do in future. And that's one type of memory that does decline substantially in normal ageing. And is this normal ageing? You know, is this what we can expect? I think the research suggests that we can expect some decline um, in cognitive functions, right? So it's not like we're dropping off a cliff at a certain point in older adulthood, but we would expect some decline. And we see that, for example, in the prospective memory. But I don't think we necessarily need to overly worry about that um, because it doesn't necessarily signal anything in particular. So it might be helpful to distinguish between when it's a problem, when it's not. So although forgetfulness is quite common in midlife, it's not the same as Alzheimer's or dementia, strictly. Yeah. So, you know, you might uh, forget what day it is and remember later in the day. But you might, if you had Alzheimer's or dementia, you'd lose track of the date or the time of year, for example. And if you're a bit forgetful, you might forget what word you're looking to use. But if something's more significant, you might have difficulty holding conversation. So there is a difference. And don't forget, we've accumulated so much information at this point in our lives. We can't really be expected to hold on to every little bit of and it. We're trying to do so much, you know, in, in middle age, aren't we, Harry? Yeah, I, I think... Making excuses yeah, here now. Yeah, but, you I, know. I, no, but I, th- I think, you know, we have to look, I call it the paradox of middle age. Do you know what I mean? So on one hand, we're forgetting. We're, we're, we're almost wandering around like lunatics all the time. But on the other hand, we're holding down to really high-powered jobs. Uh, we're, f- we're fantastic at negotiating the very complex social world of our families and children and siblings and parents and all the rest of it and friends. Uh, we're better at managing our emotions we're better at looking at things from different perspectives. We're much wiser. Uh, and to me, really, I love this because to me, this is actually, I, I can really recognise this. We get to the gist of something. So when I'm dealing with, say, people, I can get to the gist of the problem 
almost instantaneously. It's amazing how fast you cut through all the rubbish. Mm-hmm. It's like as if you built up all this stuff. Uh, but because I'll, I'll, I'll describe why in a minute, you know what I mean? But we actually get to the core of something much, much faster. So we're great problem solvers. So we actually are working at peak efficiency in our middle age brain period of time. Do you know what I mean? Between around 40 and say 68, 70, that kind of time. But we're actually at the same time, there's a cost. So the changes in our brain, which I'll describe in a second, which make us actually more efficient at managing problems, dealing with issues, being calmer, wiser, all the rest of it, we, there's a price. Mm-hmm. So tell <laughs> us a little bit about what yeah, you're saying about the brain yeah, there and how it I, works. I think, I think it's really, really helpful. The first thing is that the part of the brain that, uh, that focuses in on our names weakens. And that's actually, a lot of people used to think this was due because we're so distracted by so much going on. But it's not actually. Our ability to retrieve memories begins to reduce. And that's one of the costs. But the other side of it is that we, we get increased myelination. That's kind of like almost putting an insulation on the wiring between all parts of our brain. So our brain's working quicker and quicker and quicker. So we have this ridiculous situation that we can't remember on the one hand and we're getting a lot more efficient on the other hand. The next thing that happens is we slip into a thing called, I'm really interested in this world, it's called the default mode system. We might talk about it another time. But it's this amazing system that, that, we, we, that they had discovered where we daydream. Do you know the way when we're doing nothing and our mind goes off wandering? Yes. Well, when you're in middle age like I am, my family will say he's off again. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually almost in this daydream world, but that's often when I'm most creative. But the trouble with that daydream default mode is it distracts me from all the other things that I should, that, you know, Mm -hmm. like losing my keys and all the rest of it. Okay. Uh, So it's kind of the price we pay. Yes. And then we get. But daydreaming is very good for you. It's very good for you. Excellent for you. Really (laughs) important. And then we have this amazing skill when we're, when we're, when we're in our middle age that we begin to use both sides of our brain. So normally when we're younger, we use one or other side, the right or left side. But when we're older, we, in middle age, we start to use both sides. So therefore we get much better perspective and we solve problems a lot more quickly. Uh, and lastly, and I think this is something that I have identified in myself, and I'm sure Anne-Marie can, can, can relate to this as well, that as we get older, our prefrontal cortex gets better at calming down our amygdala. So we get a lot more positive and we're actually much better at managing negative stuff. So we have this amazing paradox between all these wonderful things that are happening to us and yet at the same time we get more forgetful. forgetful. So we should mm-hmm. cut ourselves some slack, we Anne-Marie, have to I cut think is what Anne-Marie is saying. <laughs> yeah, we should. And, you know, it's not a nice thing being aware of becoming forgetful, no more than any other aspect of ageing is particularly pleasant. Uh, and some research suggests that perceiving yourself to be forgetful is associated with slightly lower quality, quality of life for some people. But the, there's also some benefits to being able to forget certain information, of course, because... Imagine, for example, you forget a particularly challenging emotional event or you forget some aspects of it. That might facilitate forgiveness in that context and helps you move on from that event. And of course, if you think of a particular situation where you need to apply a solution to a problem, if you've forgotten what you've done before, some would argue that might inspire some creative solutions to new problems. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you're kind of forgetful and that might motivate you as well to reconnect with activities and people from your past to remind you 
yourselves of past experiences. And that can facilitate that shared nostalgia we discussed before that can reinforce social bonds. So while being forgetful is not necessarily pleasant, the act of forgetting in itself is a normal part of development and is needed as well, I suppose. You need a spring clean of all that information we've accumulated over time. Yes, and that is no harm. Um, a listener wants to know, is it correct that the brain is a muscle? And if so, can you exercise it to keep it fit? Now, we know that keeping your brain active and challenged, Anne-Marie, is mm-hmm. a really good idea. But this forgetfulness in middle age, is it inevitable or can we work to prevent it? I th- I think probably some forgetfulness is inevitable. It seems uh, common I suppose, side effect of ageing no more than any other biological process. But there are probably things we can do to mitigate the impact of it on our lives. And there are things we can do to keep our minds active, right, to mitigate cognitive decline more generally. So, for example, if you're forgetting the keys or the phone or whatever it is, you might actually need to put a strategy in place for yourself. So that might be a little basket at the door and this is where things go, for example. Or if you've never used a shopping list before, now would be the time if, if that helps. And then at the same time as putting strategies strategies in place to mitigate the impact on your life. You might also like to think, okay, well, I'd like to keep my brain active in different ways. So I might decide to learn a new skill or keep engaged with your community and social activities. And of course, if somebody was particularly worried about forgetfulness, they need to seek reliable advice about that from their GP as Mm -hmm. well. Are you a fan of lists, Harry? I am actually. I'm a huge fan of this. Uh, I, I'm actually, they laugh at me in my house. Do you know what I mean? But I, 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 there's a line that I often use that the smallest amount of written material is more powerful than the greatest memory. Yeah, I, th- I think I agree with you. And the yeah. research shows yeah. that even if you're studying for an exam, if yeah. you take written notes, even yeah. mm-hmm. if you're highlighting passages, that's not uh, as effective, yeah. is it, yeah. as, no, as no, writing no. When things When you write down. something down, yeah. in your own handwriting particularly, it's very, very powerful. It, it also kind of, I think, trains your brain a little bit, you know what I mean? It, and uh, for example, I'm a great believer, if I have so many tasks to do, try to kind of list them off and kind of tick them off as I'm going along. And it's a great way of keeping, keeping it, it also is very positive for you, do you know what I mean? You feel I'm feeling nice. getting Boost yeah, to tick, yeah, something yeah, they, they tick, tick something off your list. Tick something off the list. Yeah, you feel virtuous, don't yeah. you, when you've done that? And here's a great tip that I, I would use, like I have to use this all the time myself. Um, I have a terrible, uh, you, 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 uh, you'll introduce me to two or three people and it's like as if, where do these names go? <laughs> and I'm frantically trying to. So here's a tip that I use. I, I actually repeat three times to the person their, their actual name. Mm-hmm. I might make a reason, you know, uh, I might say, did I get your second name right? Mary, do you know what it is? And by the time I have got to the third thing, I'm hopeful that I will have retained at least their first name. <laughs> uh, and, and, and they I accept think, that as being did, normal, yeah, do they? I, they do. <laughs> and, and, and don't be afraid to say, you know, it's the middle-aged brain, I'm off again, don't mind me, do you know what I mean? I'm hopeless at remembering names. Actually, uh, approaching with a great sense of humour, uh, but actually, you know, giving yourself a clap in the back and saying, you know, I, I, I'm really doing a great job. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm helping so many people. I'm looking after my families. I'm carrying, you know, holding down a great job, whatever it is I'm doing. Uh, so I have to give myself a lot of slack and say, OK, this is the price that I pay for my middle-aged brain. But we should love our middle-aged brain. Dr. Harry Barry and Dr. Anne-Marie Craven on Today with Claire Byrne.
comedian Jason Byrne popped into the Ray Darcy show to talk about his new book, Memoirs of a Wonky-Eyed Man. Congratulations, Jason. It's it's very funny. It's a great yeah. read. Yeah, it is. I know. And, and the, the, I, the only thing, I, I, this is, and I have to ask this now, <laughs> this is important. <laughs> are, are, are these all made-up stories? No. <laughs> no, no. This is why people went, did you not really do that? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you not really sneak drink into the drifters in the brain rooms? And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, okay, this wonky, this does so many stories in this, like, and it's, it, it is it is about my career and about, but it's mainly about my dad. Yeah. So, this, you know, and he's... Paddy Byrne. Paddy Byrne, which we call the Paddy Lama. He features in every, every, every uh, chapter where I go to him for advice or he just appears in things and... Yeah, yeah. The Drifters played the Bramer Rooms. I mean, now that well, that was when the Drifters was about, I don't know, seven. Now, you seven worked, in the rooms. worked in the Bramer Rooms. Worked in the Rooms. So did Pamela down. Flood, who was a former Miss Pamela Ireland. Flood, yeah. Who you brought to your Debs, or she brought you to which which way I was brought her oh, to your Debs. Right? Okay, we we'll come she, back to that. We we'll come yeah, back to yeah, that. Yeah, That's yeah, important. Yeah. So but the Drifters. So the Drifters, famous American band. Yeah. Anybody that here listening, the Bramer Rooms was a, was a place in Dublin where everybody played, like Frankie Vaughan, Drifters, Neil Tobin. Uh, I seen all sorts of acts there, right? And the Drifters are playing there, and he had the, and, and I had like a huge big man dressed in a white suit was their manager like the Elvis's manager that yeah. type of fella and he said don't let anybody get into the drifters room they're locked in there at the back because I don't want them drink drunk on stage right and I was working there right. and we talked to him he goes any chance to say hello to the drifters and I went no dad you can't he goes go on Elvis went there say hello to drifters <laughs> so I brought him in the back right and they were they were locked in the Ford I think it was Ford of in there five of them and I opened up and uh, my dad says oh, says, oh hell yeah I'm Paddy and we, they, they're all like oh my god Paddy how are you because I also told my dad they weren't allowed to drink that's why they're locked in yeah. anyway he'd snuck a bottle of whiskey and my dad did into them and uh, they came on stage drunk Right. and your man went mad <laughs> the fella who was the manager he but went, they loved your dad. They said it was one of the best gigs they'd ever done. Afterwards, they were thanking my dad, hugging him in the car park and all. They're all going. And, they, and then your man says that my dad had given them drink. But they had a great gig. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No problem to them. But dad was always up to all sorts. Yeah, and he, it was anything for a drink. You see, yeah. you know, your memories are lovely. They're rose tinted. I say for a lot of people, not, not, not so happy. Because, and everybody knows that, ah, I met, I met Mick and Pat. We were, you know, my, my dad's story, we were in Cyprus together. I couldn't leave them up in the pub on their own. That yeah. would have been rude, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the other way, and your dad said he did. He go to Italy for Italian night. No, well, he no. went. Okay, so and because look, this mad synergy happened because I did this play called the Paddy yes. Lama Shed Talks, and the book came out at the same time, and everything's about my dad, and it all came together, and we just realised how much an amazing character my dad was. But yeah, but so it was loads of sayings in the in the play. Like I I play my dad in the play, yeah. and we're going to be doing more of them in April. So don't worry. And he comes out and he goes, um, you know, he, he sits down and he goes, I never, ever, me and your mother, we are good parents and we never, ever, ever brought you on holidays. That's what he says, right? <laughs> and he goes, because you wouldn't have liked it. <laughs> you would have hated it, it's too hot. And his motto was, because at the end of the play, he says to me, oh, Jason, you come here and everybody, you know, he doesn't talk to the audience, he's talking to the audience as Jay. And he says, uh, one thing I'll tell you now, Jay, in your life, you know, with your, with your children, and he goes, Never ever let your children get in the way of your social life. That's mm. what he used to say. So he was always like that. So he didn't. He didn't. But I mean, he loved us. And he did loads of stuff for us. But like, with, with socialising, no. Went to the rugby on his own because we wouldn't have liked it. It would have been too cold. No. That, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah all yeah. this rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> like, so yeah, he did all that. He worked in, in Guinnesses. Yeah, he was a cooper. Right. Yeah. They were treated really well, weren't they? Back in the day. Oh my God, there's pictures of my dad. You think you think they were like rock stars? Yeah. They're coming out of the Cooperage like, and people would nearly part the way to let them go by. You know what I mean? These were men that like, were, that this trade was amazing because they were building barrels by hand without using their, you know, any measuring tapes, nothing. Do you know what I mean? 
They always yeah. say, my dad used to say, you wouldn't have been very good at it now. Because well, you, you did try to get in. I did try to get in. Yeah. Uh, your dad probably thought this is like nepotism. This is going to work. And it probably did for years in Guinnesses. Yeah, my, Just, dad, my dad was walked in at age 15. Did he? By my granddad into the cooperage right. in, in James's. And uh, he, my dad says he walked up and said, uh, my dad said, this is Paddy Bourne. Or sorry, my granddad said, this is Paddy Bourne. And he says, oh, grand, put it on the books. And that's it. He started right. as a cooper. And at 18, my dad had a car and a motorbike at 18. So he thought he'd do the same for you. Yeah, just walked, walked me in, and he didn't even no research. Didn't realize that that's all well gone. <laughs> like this was nineteen ninety one or something. Right? Yeah. And he walked, goes, "This is Jay." Mike goes, "What do you mean this is Jason? I don't care who he is. He has to go over there and go through all sorts of forms." And it was the only thing you could do then was get an apprenticeship. You know what I mean? As like electrician, plumber, that kind of thing. You couldn't get like the Cooper. It was gone. Yeah. Anyway, he was brilliant because you know he was always looking out for you, and he wanted to get you a job. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's trying. Always, yeah, yeah. Because okay, so we were. I wanted to go to college, and my dad went, "Yeah, no problem, no problem." Then my mum told him how much it would cost. He went, "All right, okay, we'll get you a, a couple of interviews." <laughs> but he got me into. Uh, I was doing a waiter's course, a waiter's course, right? My God Almighty! What was I doing? Mister Mister Stint. Mister Stint was the yeah. fella's name. Did that he was, have? Did he really have a wonky eye? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. There was loads of wonky eyes when I was around as a kid. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? It's just like a lot. Of, it gets corrected now a lot. But this guy, he had the eye kind of heading off the other way. Yeah. So my eye used to go in towards my nose, but yeah. his was going the other way. Right? No, sorry. And his, oh my God! Ray's Ray's phone is actually ringing. That's not mine. <laughs> that's Ray, really bad. Ray Darcy, the presenter. <laughs> Please, be, I was told to switch off your phone, <laughs> and he's got his phone on like. I'm not going to blame anybody but usually I have it on mute I'm not going to blame anybody because that, that's not fair who does not know you're on radio right yeah, now yeah I know but I, I always have it on mute so somebody took it off mute I'm not going to say who <laughs> oh okay but somebody took it off mute <laughs> no, right sorry so, about that sorry that, yeah, right, no dad brought us in anyway I, I, I was he says I've, I know this fella who in like it was like an Anko thing or something do you know what I mean yeah and brought me in to, to train as a waiter because I'd already done bar staff he goes you can train as a waiter be like a proper waiter I was going what's that and he goes you'd be grand went down I thought it was a friend of me dad's. It wasn't really. He had given him some like large bottles of Guinness, right, to get me in there. And I got in and uh, we were there for the day and me, I went, I arrived, I can't remember, was in town somewhere, wherever I was. I arrived in, there was only two people there. And um, so where the hell is everybody else? And the next minute, this group of young men and women walked in all together with a kind of fella in a uniform. I was going, what's that? And they all came in and uh, anyway, there was about 20 of them. So now there's 23 of us, right? And going, okay. And, and there's some weird air about everybody else going, okay. So Mr. Sin's showing us how to walk with a tray. You put an apple on it, right? And you, and you walk around tables with an apple on it. So everybody's trying this. And the next minute, a huge fight broke out. And they all started lamping each other with trays and apples and all. And then your man, your man. With the uniform. Yeah. You know, with the uniform. Turned out he was a, a some sort of, not, they weren't from a prison, but they were some sort of children's reform school, reform school right. or something. And uh, they were all gathered up and put on the bus. But guess who else else? I was. I was put on the bus with them. Oh, you were lumped in with yeah, them? Yeah, because the whole, they didn't know who was who. Like, it was just it was such a raucous. And they put us on, they drove me to wherever I was going. I was going, I'm not with these people. And so a different fellow was on the bus going, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, we don't, yeah, we always hear that. There's a there's a TV programme or a movie in this, you know that. Listen, this is the crack. The one, <laughs> uh, there's a very good English friend of mine, uh, he's my promoter, Phil. And he goes, you want to put that first book together and that second book and the play. We're going to bring it all together and we're going to get it on, get it on screen somehow. Yeah. And just call it, you know, because my dad's stories, they're very, it's very, I suppose it's akin to 
you know, uh, the snapper, you know, that kind of Roddy Doyle, that t- except it wasn't in, you know, the it was more, I don't know, I don't know why it wasn't as rough, if you know what I mean, but more still. More middle class. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. No, we're not middle class. We die would have gone, what? We're all working class. You know, yeah, well, you, you nearly were middle class because you nearly won the lotto. We nearly won the lotto. Oh, <laughs> my God, Dad. I'm not, there's nothing, there's no, I'm not making any of this up. My dad brought us out the back garden, right? Yeah. And he had a phone on the table. You remember, you know, the phones with, you know, the phones you dial? Yeah. Because they used to have long wire on them. Yeah. So he, he brought it out to the, to the back garden. Like, that's how long our house was, by the way. You could bring the phone from the front to the back, <laughs> no problem. And he had the phone on the, uh, on the table. And me and he goes, me mother was there, me two sisters. He goes, uh, he says to my mum, like she's the secretary, can you ring uh, my son, please, in Sweden? Eric. 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 We always called Eric the phone because he was always, he never, nobody ever seen Eric. He was always in Sweden, so he's always on the phone. So we just call him Eric the phone. Right. So my dad rang and me only hears people going, hello? And then my dad goes, I have an announcement to make to the family, right? <laughs> I go, what? He goes, I did a lotto and we nearly won, he says, right? <laughs> I nearly won. I nearly won. He goes, what? Well, I'm about to get five out of six numbers. But he got money for it, you see. Right. And we thought, what, did you win it or not win it? He goes, no, I didn't exactly win it, but I nearly won it. Right. Isn't that exciting, everybody? So <laughs> I think he had two grand to try to di- divvy out between to everybody. But like, then everybody in the pub thought he won it. Right. Because it was like, because, you know, the lot, that lotto was won. But then my dad was picked in up your wrong. area. My yeah. dad was picked up wrong in the pub and people were telling everybody that Paddy Bourne had won the lotto. And he was going, no, I nearly won it. I didn't win it. And, he got, and the jackpot was what, two and a half million. I don't know what. Yeah, it was yeah. something meant. That's like coming second in a race, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Nearly like winning the lotto. Nearly winning the lotto. I don't want it. That's why I, I don't do the lotto. But my dad did the same numbers every week. But he was, he was, he was very conscious of the fact that if you were spending any money, that yeah. people would be talking. And oh, thank yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. We had plans for an extension for years on the side of the house, like blueprint. And we said, why won't you build that, Dad? And he goes, because everybody be looking at it and they'll think we won the lotto. So we're not doing <laughs> it. And it wasn't for ages that he actually did it. And then he did it. He tried to get uh, scaffolding in front of it and put big blue tarpaulin over it. Do you know when shops do that? And you go, coming soon. Oh, yeah. Whatever, big shop. <laughs> That's what he did. And it made it worse because the neighbours are knocking in going, what's going on behind there now, Etna? To me, ma'am. She's got nothing. Are you sure there's nothing going on there? She's got nothing at all. My dog goes, get out of it. Get out of it, I'll tell you. So he was like, he hid it from them. Yeah. But yeah, the constant. My dad was just a funny man, do you know what I mean? Like but he's, he's, and he liked comedy as well. He brought you along gee, to see Mac, yeah. Billy Connolly. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. is nearly the undoing of you and your career. Yeah, I said, I'm never doing that. Why, you're so seen, good. I've seen Billy Connolly. I've seen him in front of all those people. I was only like 16, 17. I was going, I'm never getting up in front of all those people. That's on your own. Do you know what I mean? That, I can, you can, and now I understand why people say to me, I can't believe you do stand-up. It's, it's, it's so hard. Like I met, you know, remember Jerry Conlon? Do you remember? Yeah. From uh, uh, Birmingham Six? Yes. And he was on Late Late Show years ago when I was on with him. Right. And he was there with Paddy Hill. Right. I'll never forget it. And I'm sitting back backstage with them and he goes, what's your name? Well, not that not in his accent. Yeah. What's your name? Right? <laughs> went Jason Byrne. He went, Jason. But what do you do? I do stand up. He goes, Oh my god, I'd never do that. And Paddy Hill goes, I'd never do that. And he says, But you spent all that years in prison. But he goes, I'd rather go to prison than do stand up. He said. Comedian Jason Byrne on the Ray Darcy show earlier. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.